Here's a question for you. When was the last time you watched a drama in which one of the lead characters was a child? And not one of those cheesy, feel-good, inspirational movies. I'm talking about a dark, serious drama. How many can you name off the top of your head right now? Probably not many, right? That's because there are very, very few filmmakers who can accurately and honestly portray the plight of very young children on screen. Believe it or not, M. Night Shyamalan has always been one of those filmmakers. Despite his divisive reputation, he's always featured young characters at the heart of his stories, but he never pushes the envelope too far, always maintaining a sensitivity to how his young characters interact with the horror and thriller elements of his movies. This all started from the jump with 1999's The Sixth Sense. His fall from grace has shrouded this movie in the past, but its portrayal of childhood, as well as its iconic twist, has kept this movie just as memorable as it was 20 years ago. You have to wonder just what went into M. Night Shyamalan placing someone so young at the center of something so tragic without turning him into a martyr. Why is he still one of the only filmmakers working in the industry today who can take such a vulnerable age group and portray them with such respect and dignity. To answer this, I brought in a Sixth Sense expert and a horror lover through and through, Anna Chazelle. You may recognize her last name, Chazelle, as belonging to Damien Chazelle, the acclaimed director behind such films like Whiplash and La La Land. But his younger sister, Anna, is a talented triple threat in her own right, an actor, writer, and director whose directorial debut, entitled Narrow, was an incredibly impressive slow burn horror short that got featured on shortoftheweek.com. Plenty of Oscar qualifying short films, and in fact, some winners in the past have been featured on the site. Anna knows what goes into making an effective psychological horror story, and The Sixth Sense is her all-time favorite. Today, she's going to share with us her insight into how the film's central relationship, gripping performances, and terrifying ghosts make for one of cinema's most effective stories on childhood trauma that has yet to be duplicated. Hello and welcome to My Favorite Movie Is, a podcast celebrating our favorite movies through fresh, positive takes from passionate movie lovers. I'm your host and a movie lover just like you, Larry Freed. And every week we sit down with a brand new cinephile as they share the life-changing experiences behind their all-time favorite movie or whatever comes closest. Through their stories, you will gain brand new, modern insight into some of the most talked about movies of all time, all while deepening your appreciation and love for cinema and reaffirming the power of filmmaking. Thank you so much for being here. We know that there are plenty of other movie podcasts that you listen to, and we are honored to be amongst them. Quickly, before we get started, if you haven't watched the movie that we're talking about today, don't worry, you can still continue to listen to this episode, which is spoiler-free uh, for now. Eventually, we are going to have to dive into the nitty-gritty, but when we do, we're going to give you a fair spoiler warning, so that way you can go into this film as fresh as possible. But for those of you who did the homework, sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of My Favorite Movie Is... Hello, my name is Anna Chazelle, and my favorite movie is The Sixth Sense. Can you recount for me your first experience watching it? 
I can tell you exactly where I was and when I was and who I was. I was about 12 years old and it was the first horror film that I recalled intentionally watching. I had seen clips of other horror films throughout my childhood. Dracula, the Bela Lugosi one, The Shining, The Exorcist, little clips here or there when my family was watching movies that I wasn't allowed to watch, but I would sneak in regardless. I hadn't yet had the quintessential experience of knowing what exactly a horror film was and what it was intended to do. And so uh, my friend, when I was 12, had invited me over for a sleepover and, you know, this film had just come out and, or I guess I should say it was on video at this point, back when VHS right. was a thing. And she wanted to watch The Sixth Sense and we all thought, sure, why not? We watched it and I lost my goddamn mind. I was so <laughs> scared. I didn't know, A, that it was a horror film, or even if I did know, I didn't know that's what horror films did. I didn't know that they they could have just this sheer effect. I was very scared of ghosts in general. I was very scared oh. of, of hauntings. I was convinced that we had ghosts in our basement or something. I hated being in my house alone as a child. Not that that happened often because I was very young. But I remember it was actually many years later that my dad told me that he recalled picking me up from the sleepover the next morning. And he said, you were white as a sheet. Like you were not okay. <laughs> and I had nightmares for like weeks. <laughs> white as a ghost, white as one a may ghost. say. Indeed. I've always been far more scared and intrigued by the supernatural than I have ever been by saying true crime. Uh, the thought of a murderer breaking in and killing me does not really scare me, or at least it didn't as a child. Today, now that I have read the news and seen mm. a couple of true crime documentaries, of course now of course, I have a better sense of what the world is like. But as a child, that didn't concern me. But the thought of there being some, you know, dead Victorian you know, girl who succumbed to pneumonia back in the 1700s haunting my house. To me, like, oh yeah, no, that's a possibility. That's probably gonna happen, was what my 12-year-old <laughs> brain said. And I love hearing about all these, all these legends and tales that vary from culture to culture and the ways in which they differ and the ways in which they're the same. And there always seems to be this universal fear, if you will, of the dead, not of death, I mean, yes, of death, but really of, of what happens to us after we die. There's always this desire to explain where our souls, if you will, go after we die. But there is also, there seems to be almost a universal fear too, that, that it can become something stronger than us, that it can somehow manipulate our surroundings or ourselves without us being able to defend ourselves. It seems to be, as humans, something that's has been a centuries-old fear for, I mean, I don't know. I'm not a anthropologist, but probably I would venture to guess several millennia old. I wasn't able to revisit this film simply because I couldn't bring myself to watch it again, right. even long after I had discovered or you could say rediscovered this love for horror that I continued to have throughout my teen years, even though it scared me so much, but I would still almost sadistically continue to to dive into these these kinds of stories. I decided, you know, as a filmmaker that the genre that I love the most is horror. I have since then seen 
this always sounds a bit like a brag and I don't mean it that way, but I have seen so many horror films at this point that I don't get scared very easily by them anymore. Whereas when I was younger, you know, a scary episode of Scooby-Doo would give me nightmares. <laughs> but regardless of all the hundreds of terrifying horror films that I saw over the years, I couldn't bring myself to rewatch The Sixth Sense because it was almost, it almost had formed some sort of scar tissue that it was simply the memory of what it did to me psychologically as a child that I was so scared to revisit. I was scared that either it wasn't going to live up to, to what it did when I was a child and also that it would just make me scared again. <laughs> wow. I think it was actually during the pandemic I finally brought myself to watch it and I discovered some very interesting things about it, which is one, it did scare me to this day. And a lot of that could have to do with the fact that I do have very personal memories of it. Uh, but of I think course. it also just is an extremely effective movie as a horror film. And, and I have many, many thoughts as to why that is. But I also discovered just the structure of it was way different than what I had remembered it being. It unfolded at a much slower pace. It effectively switches perspectives halfway through the film. And it is, in fact, an incredibly moving film as well. It is not simply about scares. The fear that it conjures serves a purpose. And it is not there solely for the sake of being able to earn the label of horror film. It is there in order for us as audience members to be able to, to comprehend something very specific about the theme, which, you know, I think there's, there's themes of loneliness, there's themes of abuse, of isolation, of connection, of communication. Yeah, so I'm happy to say that having now seen it, you know, a handful of times, I still can quite boldly say that I think it is still an extremely excellent horror film. I want to talk about this love of horror, but before we do, I want to back up just a little bit. I know that you were born and grew up in Princeton, New Jersey, which, fun fact, is not very far from where I grew up. We are both Jersians uh, from from birth. Well, technically, I was born in Massachusetts, but I moved here before <gasps> I was conscious, so I count okay. myself as a Jersian. We'll allow you. Yeah, don't tell anyone. <laughs> um... I want to know what it was like growing up with your family. I think anybody who recognizes your last name will know that your brother, Damien Chazelle, knew he would be a filmmaker from a very young age. And I know that you played a corpse or two in some of his younger projects, which is fitting given the <laughs> horror focus. Um, what was it like for you growing up in that environment? And when did the film bug find you in that environment? It's interesting because in many ways I would say the film bug didn't um, find me until much, much later into my adulthood. The film bug being wanting to actually have a career in film as opposed to simply enjoying films. And there's many reasons for that. One of them is that when I was a teenager, what I wanted to do was theater. I was a, I was a theater kid. I wanted to be on Broadway. And that was my goal through and through. Um, musical theater and Shakespeare, contemporary theater. And I lived in New York for 10 years and I studied acting, but I, I think I, I needed a change from New York. It is very difficult to make a living in the theater. Not that it's an easier in film, but uh, the, the pay rates are quite different. 
As a child, I I loved movies the way that any child loved movies, um, but I wasn't as enthralled with them as my brother was. Uh, my brother knew from birth that he wanted to create films, and there was never really any question either. I think in his mind or in anyone who knew him that that is what he would eventually do. He was extremely passionate about it, whereas I didn't have that immediate connection that he did. But there was, I think, a certain subconscious degree of reluctance on my end because I think I saw film as being his thing. Like, he's so good at it. And how could I possibly measure up to that? And I didn't want to just be like, well, he's doing it. I'll do it too. As I was simultaneously discovering that I did enjoy writing and I did enjoy directing, that is when I started to realize, oh my God, I really love horror. I love horror. I love sci-fi, thrillers, supernatural period pieces, but especially horror. That seems to be the genre that I always find myself going back to. I am just constantly ingesting some form of it, whether it is films, novels, short stories, true stories, plays. Mm. It's just something that I can't seem to get enough of. Is that because of my early experience, my youthful exposure to this film? We could very much perhaps credit The Sixth Sense with um, being the reason I why I love horror. I would love to say it, had a, it, it definitely had a place in it. I, I would say it, that it, it is a blip. It definitely, you know, made me discover something about myself. Uh, oh, this is an awful experience in the here and now, but weeks <laughs> from now, I'm still thinking about it, so. Mm, one of our other guests who was talking about Hereditary said that the, the thing that made her know that this was her all-time favorite was that she could not stop thinking about it. Yes. After she saw it long yes. after, which I think is a common horror thing. When I was in my teens, I would come home from school and if I happened to have the house to myself I didn't feel like starting my homework yet and I would think I would like to watch a movie before I start my homework what am I gonna watch I'm gonna watch The Shining and I would watch it alone as like a 15 year old you know teenage girl and would love it and then would have nightmares for weeks and I <laughs> and yet I never seemed to learn I would do it again and again and not just that there was also the omen nightmare on Elm Street there definitely was a part of me that I think realized that as much as these, as I would regret watching these films again and again and again, I couldn't tear myself away from them. There was something so fascinating about them, so gripping. And I think The Shining in particular, I mean, it, it feels almost like an easy answer because it is widely considered to be one of the greatest horror films ever made. But for good reason, I think that film and the way in which it's it pulls the rug out from our sense of security so slowly until before we know it, we are just completely immersed in danger, I think is so masterful. Mm. And I think that between those four films and The Sixth Sense, I think that I can safely say those really, really molded what I consider to be the type of horror that I love to explore and the way I like to tell it. I was wondering in terms of writing, where was the foundation laid for your writing sensibilities in particular? So I actually have a pretty interesting story about that. I was trying to get a grasp on the fundamentals of screenwriting when I moved to LA 
And as any screenwriter knows, it's a lot of trial and error. It's a lot of reading scripts, reading how-tos, and it can be tricky to understand what the bare bones of a screenplay looks like. And I found myself forcing myself to try to, to veer more towards comedy because it just seemed to be what mm. what sold. And I think it seemed to be an easier vehicle for an actor to also put themselves in. And that was also before I had realized that I actually really loved horror. And so I was trying to write this, I don't know, the sort of mumblecore-esque script, and I just wasn't very interested in it. And I had seen, not that long ago, The Babadook um, for the first time. Another modern horror classic. Oh, my goodness. I'm sure I will reference mm -hmm. that film several more times because <laughs> I think it is just so incredible. But I had, and actually, I had gone through a phase where I, I didn't watch any horror for many years because I, I just got too scared. And The Babadook, I had heard from many, many people, this is such an incredible film, so... There was one day where I was sick in bed and it was on Netflix and I thought, sure, let's check it out. And I absolutely loved it. And so I was at my temp job. Nothing was happening. I was sitting at the front desk. I was trying to work on my screenplay and, and I was feeling really, really stuck. And I thought to myself, okay, I'm just going to try an exercise. I'm just going to try to write out the climactic scene of the Babadook, which I won't say what it is for anyone who hasn't yet seen the film. I'm just going to try to write Kylie. it out as if I had written the script. So I wrote like five pages, just, you know, literally nice. plagiarizing yeah. the Babadook. I wasn't going to do anything <laughs> with it. I just, it was an exercise. And at the end of those five pages, literally I sat back and just went, oh, okay, this is what I want to write. So I, oh. I just like scrapped the comedy. I haven't really revisited it since. And I started thinking like, okay, what kind of horror can I write? I thought maybe I would do like a Victorian kind of thing. That didn't really work. And then I started veering more towards sci-fi. I really love dystopian stories, post-apocalyptic stories, which segues easily into narrow, which I'm happy to discuss more of unless there was other know, facets. We might, we might, I think we're going to talk about it a little bit. So if you okay. want to do if you want to do my job for me, you're more than welcome. <laughs> well, so narrow is a 10 minutes short film. It is a world where society has been completely decimated and the only safe place to walk is on this very thin path. Uh, if you step off of it for one second, there are these very mysterious creatures that can get you. But as long as you're on the path, you're safe. So the way I like to describe it is that's the horror film of The Floor is Lava, basically. Um, <laughs> and these demons take the form of loved ones, people who have fallen off the path before, they try to lure you off. I wrote, directed, and, and I starred in it. And we shot it just before the pandemic in 2019. So we had our release during the pandemic, which meant, you know, all the festivals were online, but that was okay. I'm just glad we were able to get it done before the world set on fire. It's available on Short of the Week right now. So anybody uh, with an internet connection can go out, check it out, watch it. It's quite good. The easy way to describe it is it does not hold your hand or spoon feed you in any way whatsoever. The audience is really forced to connect the dots, draw the lines, form the world for themselves almost as you watch this movie. It's very much a slow burn kind of a story. It definitely takes time to get going. And I was just curious, why you decided to take that approach in this film in particular. I don't know if it was at ever at any point a conscious decision on my part. I think those are just the stories that I t 
time and time again find myself drawn to. I have so much respect and admiration for horror films that don't over-explain. I find that there is so much power in mystery and in simply being dropped into a foreign world without any immediate explanation or exposition of what is going on or really how to resolve the, the dilemma that they are in. Because I think that is a very human experience that we don't always know how things come to be. There are still so many mysteries in this universe that we just cannot explain. And I think one of the reasons why I love horror so much is that in many ways, it remystifies the world. It signals to us, at least supernatural horror, signals to us that there is something beyond our immediate perspective beyond that which we can simply comprehend with our five senses, if you will. <laughs> I, see, um, I see what you're trying to do there. You're doing you're my job right? for me. I'm like, I'm trying to desperately get these segues down. Anna's just, Anna's just one jump ahead. Five senses, wink. Exactly. You can't see me, but I'm winking like furiously. <laughs> <laughs> and here it comes. We are officially entering spoiler territory. For those of you who want to go into this film as fresh as possible, this is where we part. If you've been enjoying the show so far and you want more My Favorite Movie Is, I encourage you to check out more episodes on our show page on the podcasting app you're listening on right now, or find all of our episodes at mfmipodcast.com. We've covered plenty of other movies, and any movie lover worth their salt has surely seen at least one of them. But all right, enough dilly-dallying. Let's dive into spoiler territory. Do you remember your reaction to when you were first watching the movie and you experienced that twist? So the twist of that he can see dead people or the famous twist at the end? Let's go with both and see where it goes. So I already knew the twist of that he sees dead people. I'm pretty sure it was in the trailer when it first came out. Um, I True. I don't think that was meant to be as much of a reveal. But to go back to your original point, I remember being incredibly shocked as a child. I remember very much thinking, I didn't know you could do that. Like, what do you mean? <laughs> I, I can't think of any other film before that that I had seen that had had such a, a dastardly twist, if you will. I think at the time I was still so traumatized from the scares that I was like, oh, that's interesting. I'm going to go home and tremble for like three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> you, you were just so, you were so scared by everything else already that that twist was just, you were already desensitized yeah. <laughs> to the whole situation. You were like, yep, okay, great. More, more of this horror. <laughs> exactly. Don't tell anybody, Anna, but I watched this movie for the first time for this episode. I won't so, tell anyone. No one will ever know. Yeah, don't tell, don't tell a soul. I might lose <laughs> my film card. And so I knew about the main twist because, duh. But I actually didn't, I wasn't fully cognizant of the twist at the end while I was watching it, even though I'm sure I'd, I'd heard about it. Because as I was watching the movie and I was putting pieces together, I was like, Oh, he's dead, isn't he? <laughs> like, I was like, oh, yeah, that's right, because the, the twist of the movie is that he's dead. Like, I sort of was putting it together. But this movie, it's so interesting in that the first beat in which you see Bruce Willis's character, 
it's right with Tony Collette's character. And so immediately the audience is like, oh, okay, real person, teehee, you know, like, of course. And you don't realize in that moment that they don't interact. They don't even explicitly acknowledge each other's presence, really. It's an easy misdirect in the beginning that serves the whole rest of the movie. It's a really fascinating moment that allows for that twist to really hit hard. But of course, every other scene, it's literally just them. Most of it. I think every other scene is just them two together. Occasionally him and his wife, but they don't talk directly. Correct. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They have uh, he's walking by the store and stuff like that. Yeah. What a bummer. Oh, <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. Because they're in the oh, God, the dinner. Scene. The dinner. That is another really, really wild misdirect. Oh, it's um, so well done. I know that I've been a little distant. I, I know that it makes you mad. I just feel like I'm being given a second chance and I don't want it to slip away. Anna. Happy anniversary. I'd love to talk a little bit about twists in general because we did an episode previously on the show about Fight Club, which is another movie that is one of the quintessential twists in film. We talked about how the movie still lives on even with knowledge of the twist, even without the twist. You don't need the twist to fully appreciate that film. Would you say that the same applies to The Sixth Sense? I think that the film is, of course widely known for its very, very famous twist. But I think it is equally known for the other twist, which isn't so much a twist, but the the famous I See Dead People. I See Dead People. I think that that element alone creates such an effective story. When I rewatched it years later, I could have sworn that that happened earlier in the film, that that was essentially the inciting incident. Yeah. It doesn't happen till halfway through. That is, I Easily, think, yeah. incredibly, midpoint. it's the midpoint. And I think that's such a smart decision. Yeah, It's not a murder mystery. It's not like we are trying to figure out who done it. You know, it's not, it's mm. not an Agatha Christie novel where, oh my gosh, it was the person we least suspected. We aren't even aware that some other level to the story is coming. We think that, okay, it's been resolved until the rug gets pulled out from under us. And that's only when... We have essentially resolved the story of the child, of Cole, but there still is the story of the protagonist, of Bruce Willis, that requires that final resolution. And I think that is where the twist comes in. The reveal at the end, that little kernel of information, I don't think the movie would have worked at all without it. It's not a twist simply there for the sake of grabbing the audience by the shoulders and going, ha ha ha, got you. All the elements are there if you know where to look. And it's not just the small details of, oh, he never actually interacts with his wife. He never talks to Tony Collette, but also the small little rules of the world that are very subtly laid out, such as the dead don't know that they're dead. They need to be helped in some way so that they can move on to the next plane. The fact that Cole instructs to Bruce Willis how to speak to his wife in a way so that she can hear him. It's necessary for the story because I don't think that this character of Cole would have invested himself in Bruce Willis's character if he had not sensed from the beginning this guy is dead. And perhaps that is the one thing that was missing from all the other child psychologists that he saw, which they establish in the film he has seen many of and none of them could help him. And I think that was maybe the small thing 
that was the thing that made him think maybe this is the missing piece. Maybe this is the guy who can help me because he is in fact dead. As we all know, a twist only works if it can fit neatly into the rest of the puzzle that the film has created. If you are trying to jam a square piece into a round, that sounds really bad. <laughs> square peg in a round hole is what you're being. Thank you. If you're trying to scotch tape together the rest of the story to fit around a twist, I could name examples, but I'm not going to. Then, of course, you know, I think audiences are I. very... <laughs> I think audiences are very, very attuned to that. And I think they have very little patience for it these days, especially. I think this is an example of a twist that takes this already effective story and elevates it to an even higher level because we realize that this person who up until now we thought was one degree removed from this entire scenario is not, is a part of it. He and Cole were brought together both for Cole's sake, but also for his own sake. He needed right. to have that case in order to move on. I think one of the things about this film that makes it so effective was to have Cole be a child as opposed to just a fellow adult, not only because of the vulnerability that a child um faces more so than I think your average adult. But I think there is something so powerful about the isolation that it creates. And I think this is a great example of a film where perhaps I can't speak for everyone, but in my experience is that I feel as though Cole, and I think this is a great testament to Haley Joel Osment's performance, is just as scared as I was watching that film. The fear is not there to belie the emotion, but rather augments the emotion. When I watched this film, I kept thinking to myself, my God, this is an allegory for abuse, for child abuse. The child is literally being abused by ghosts. But if you look at the ways in which the in which Cole, Haley Joel Osment's character, copes with this, it feels quite akin to a child who is being harmed in some way by an adult who becomes very withdrawn, who feels very alone, is bullied by his friends. His mother is trying her best, but she is ill-equipped and doesn't have the societal support that single mothers could really use to, to try to get him proper care. And in many ways, it's because he is being forced to deal with something that a child should in an ideal world, not have to deal with, which is the concept of death. Of course, the reality of things is that many children do have to cope with death, which you know, obviously is very, very tragic. But I think in this case, what is so interesting to me about the film is how grounded it is in its mythology, in its lore. I really, really love that the film never at any point goes the route of oh, well, you just need to find this person's bones and return it to their crypt and then they will rest and you will be freed. Like, that never happens. There is no <laughs> magical save. It's, it becomes about learning how to cope with what he has endured and how to move forward with it. And you have, in the very beginning, the example of the other child, now grown, who in the very first scene comes back to Bruce Willis's house and says, you failed me and is 
clearly not well. It's the fact that a knight chose to have the person with this gift to be a child as opposed to an adult was a very smart decision, I think, because we tend to write off children, or at least we like to think that they don't have a strong understanding of what is happening around them or what is happening to them or that their imaginations are just far too wild. I think this is a perfect example of showing this is what happens when a child is going through something horrible and isn't believed, is ignored until finally someone comes along who does believe him. As a child, you you have to blindly trust that the adults that you are around will protect you. But if they can't see or can't even believe the danger that you are in, I can't even imagine how isolating and terrifying that that must be. And so I think that this film, the fear is, of course, in the traditional horror elements, the ghost, the kid whose half of his head is blown off because he got his father's shotgun. You've got terrifying little mm. Misha Barton under the bed. One of the, oh, so, so scary. Dude, the vomit, her vomit is just that, a killer. Oh, that, a killer. There's a different moment for me that always just shook me to my core. And that is when he goes into the kitchen, he sees the redhead woman who he thinks is his mother and turns around and realizes that it's not. And, she's, and she yeah. yells at him. And oh my God, one of the scariest moments of, I think, for me at least in, in any horror film. Mm -hmm. In horror films, if I don't believe that the character who is supposedly being hunted or, or is being terrorized, if I don't believe that they are actually scared, I won't be scared. Mm. And I think in this particular film, whether I was 12, whether I was in my 20s, whether it was like last week, I believed every moment that that kid was terrified out of his mind. And you could see the kind of long-lasting damage that that would do to someone like him, both because we see literally in the first scene what that does to someone, but also because I think any one of us would know that it is not good to be terrified for literally your, mm -hmm. your most formative years. But I think even more than that, it is experienced by one of the most vulnerable participants of our society, which is a young child whose mother is is working late hours and doesn't, you know, is trying her best, but doesn't really know what to do. Father is not in the picture, being bullied by kids at school. Teachers think that he's a weirdo. He is utterly alone. And that alone, I think, adds such a powerful layer to this film on top of the scares. And that is what I mean when I say that the scares are not simply there for the audience's sake. They are there to further the story. They are there to heighten the emotions of the characters. And I think that in its core is what creates an effective horror film. You made a comment to me in one of our first conversations about this movie off, off mic, uh, <laughs> that the film has no antagonist, mm -hmm. which is like the last thing you would think for horror. Horror has so often been codified by Jason, Freddy, Pinhead, you know? Like, horror is so well known for its antagonists, and yet this movie frightened you so deeply. The horror aficionado, and yet it is 
has no antagonist. How how do you explain that? It surprised me very much as well because I sat down and I really thought like, okay, if I had to break down who is the protagonist, who is the antagonist, I mean, you've got the the two protagonists, which essentially follows both of their stories, Malcolm and Cole. But who is the antagonist? Who is the villain? It, it's not... It's not Malcolm. It's not Cole. It's not the mother. Yeah, there's a bully at school, but he's a secondary character. Is it the ghosts? Well, on a more surface level, yes. But as the film progresses, we realize that's not actually the case. That's not to say that that in of itself is anything new. I think that it's man versus the world or man versus himself or man versus a situation as opposed to a villain. But it is unusual for a horror film. It really is. And unlike Freddy, unlike Jason, who those are films with very clear-cut antagonists. And that's not to say that that's any less effective. I think Nightmare on Elm Street is a fantastic horror film. Oh, well, I love, I love Nightmare on Elm Street. Don't yeah, of wrong. course. But for me personally, when there is a, a clear-cut antagonist or when the monster can be visibly seen and is no longer looking in shadows, to me, it becomes a little less scary because mm. it becomes something that you can quantify and you can potentially defeat. But if you don't even know what you're dealing with, how in the world can you defeat that? And I think in The Shining, in The Sixth Sense, in many, many other horror films, there never is any point in which we as humans can ever get the better of the antagonistic force. And I think in The Sixth Sense, as I mentioned before, I'm so appreciative of the fact that there is no easy solution to his, to his curse, to his burden. He is not cured, so to speak, by the end. Is this something that will plague him the rest of his life? Perhaps. We don't know. I think, you know, the film does establish in the first scene that it's not something that goes away with age. The, the other Vincent Gray uh, is still plagued by it, and all you can do is learn how to cope with it. And I mean, we talked about this with Hereditary. Our guest literally said something along the lines of what you said, which is that, who's the villain of Hereditary? It's difficult to directly pinpoint the villain in Hereditary. And yeah. she made a fascinating argument that a lot of the events that happened in Hereditary were inevitable. And the antagonistic forces that are at play in Hereditary only were there to help to facilitate what ultimately happens to the family or the 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 breakdown of the family in, in that film. Spoiler alert, things do not go well in that <laughs> film. For this film, I agree with you that the real horror is this idea of abuse, of loneliness, not feeling the ability to connect with somebody else. But what's fascinating about this film, and I'm interested in your take on this, is that Cole is ultimately, at the end of the film, there is a sense of closure. There is a sense of having overcome his trauma, or I mean, he'll maybe have never fully overcome his trauma, but he has found closure in that. I feel like some people might think that, you know, a horror film may have been more effective if it did not have that kind of sense of closure. But do you find that that sense of closure for the character is valuable for the movie? Interesting. First of all, yes. I think especially when we have horror films that involve children. I think that just as humans, mm. we are so much more sensitive to their well-being. And it's actually yes. interesting that you bring up hereditary. I will not spoil anything, 
but that movie pulls oh, yeah. no punches. Oh, yeah. You know, it's actually a funny story. It's a quick side tangent about that. Mutual friend, uh, Trisha Aran, previous guest on the show, she mentioned that she uh, is horrible with horror uh, <laughs> and she will not touch the thing. And uh, she told me that you told her just what happens in the movie. She didn't even watch it. You just told her the big traumatic event in that movie. And she hated that you had even told her that the oh. words even came out of your mouth. I mean, in her defense, she has a child. So I imagine that suddenly yeah, yeah. Uh, any sort of harm that comes to children, even in films, suddenly just becomes so much oh, more heightened. Yeah. Um, I don't have children, but I have a young nephew. And even that, I mean, just like yeah. watching this film, just suddenly my desire that which I had to protect, you know, this young child in this film or in it or in Hereditary, in any film, I'm just like, oh, oh my God. I will murder anything that comes to harm you. <laughs> no, I'm also very sensitive to portrayals of children in, in film. Obviously, hereditary. Mm-hmm. <sighs> so you could you could argue that the closure for the child character for Cole sort of ties into that sensitivity. I do believe that it's important not to beat your audience too much over the head with doom and gloom in horror. I think there needs to be an mm. ebb and a flow. There needs to be a kernel of hope at times, mm-hmm. so that if you do decide to have the film end on an extremely dour note, that it doesn't feel as though the audience has just been put through two hours of sheer abuse, but that there it was, in fact, a, a ride, a journey that they were going on. In this particular case, it, this film does have a bit more of a, shall we say, uplifting ending, even though... And as I've mentioned before, I just love that the film didn't cheat itself in that there there is no cure. There is closure, but there isn't resolution. There isn't there is not a cure for him. Oh, and right. and That's I a just good point. I think that that is such a smart choice and a brave choice, considering everything that we see that poor child have to endure up until then. I think that there is a limit as to how much humans can take. And I don't know. I'm sure that there are plenty of people who would disagree. There are all sorts of extreme films out there that just put their characters through the ringer incessantly. The reboot of It, which I will also not spoil any elements for anyone who hasn't seen it. I knew it was about a killer clown, but I didn't know anything else. So that opening scene very much shocked me. Yeah. Cut to about maybe a year later, and I was babysitting my nephew, who was maybe eight months old at the time, and he had gone down for bed. And so I was like, I'm going to watch a movie. I'm going to watch it. Uh, I'm going to rewatch it. And I turned it off after that first scene, because even though I knew what was coming, (laughs) watching that, with my baby nephew, like sleeping yeah. in another room, just I couldn't do it. It was too, it was too much. I couldn't watch, you know, any of these poor kids be put through any kind of harm. Would the sixth sense be as effective if there hadn't been that closure at the end? Who's to say? However, I personally believe that the journey between Malcolm and Cole is powerful enough that it is earned, I think, that that semi-resolution at the end is enough for us to leave the theater feeling as though we can continue onwards with our lives, that yes, there is some form of an afterlife, but it's okay. Because at the end of the day, the other thing to keep in mind too, is that 
the implications of this world do not solely affect the child. It affects all of us because mm. it essentially highlights, yes, there is some form of afterlife. True. Our souls do continue True. in some way. And for me, I think that one of the things that always scared me so much about the supernatural is not so much what the ghosts can do to us, but merely just the fact that they could possibly exist. That as a child, I always thought to myself, if I ever see a ghost, even if it doesn't look at me or speak to me or hurt me in any way, I will be so scared simply because of the implications of what that means for what else is out there. Wow. And so I think the end of this film kind of highlights to us, hey, it's okay. We might linger for a little bit, but we can also eventually move on. I love that. I mean, I feel like this movie subconsciously is like a cure for you. <laughs> it, it, is, it was a cure for your fear of ghosts. Cure in a, in is, an I don't way. know if I'd say cure. <laughs> uh, well, there, as you say, there is no cure. There is Only no cure. some closure. <laughs> It's always a little difficult, I think, to kind of claim boldly uh, that, you know, I would not have loved horror as much if it weren't for this film, because that's a hypothetical that can never be proven. But I think it is, you know, a fair assumption, perhaps, to make that this film, it was such a, a powerful experience, um, uh, you know, whether it was a good, whether it wasn't a, a negative one at the time. It definitely was a memorable experience, one that stuck with me for a very long time. I can't imagine that it did not have an, a massive impact on my love of horror and why I find myself drawn to it again and again. Is it because I am trying to rectify some past trauma of my childhood from being exposed to this kind of story too young? Who knows? But I do think that it illuminated to me a facet of storytelling that I hadn't at least deliberately been exposed to before. I don't think any other film had evoked such a reaction in me, even though I had plenty of films that I adored. But there was no film that I think I had had dreams about for weeks. Granted, those dreams were nightmares. It certainly stayed with me. It stayed with me for such a long time. And to this day, I mean, as I mentioned before, I could not bring myself to rewatch it until very recently because just that scar tissue was still there. It was this underlying fear embedded in a memory that I was really, really scared to revisit. I'm glad that I did, and I have several times since then. I think that it is just an excellent film, regardless of if it scares you or not. I agree with you 100%. If you're not going to make the bold claim that this movie, that you wouldn't love horror without this movie, I will. Okay, fair <laughs> and enough. That's, <laughs> and that's, that is where we'll end it there. And I'll stand by that claim. The Sixth Sense had an undeniable impact on Anna Chazelle's love for horror. But I don't think the impact would have hit as hard if she hadn't been a child when she watched it. She was the prime audience for this movie, a movie about scared kids that scared kids. M. Night took a story on child abuse and domestic trauma and put its victims front and center, tapping into the fears of an entire age group who saw this movie and deeply connected with how much it shook them. I find that so many of our favorite movies impact us when we're children, so M. Night telling stories about young people is an incredibly noble effort. 
but I want to know what movies shook you when you were a kid? Were they horror movies like The Sixth Sense? Were they in an entirely different genre? I want to know all of your movie memories. And thankfully, there's a perfect place where you can share them with me. In the My Favorite Movie Is free Discord community, we watch movies together, talk about movies together, and connect through movies together, all in one place. We've watched a number of movies that we've covered on the show through virtual watch parties, and we've also shared plenty of fun stories and memories through daily discussion prompts. One of the latest prompts I posed to our audience was to tell me a story about a time that a movie really shook you. And we've gotten answers that are both horror movies and non-horror movies. I'm sure you've thought of an answer by now and you really want to share it with me. So click on the link in the show notes below and join our positive, passionate community of movie lovers. I hope to see you there. So next Monday is the 4th of July, otherwise known as the American Independence Day uh, for our international listeners out there. And I figured what better way to celebrate Independence Day than to talk about Independence Day. No, not the holiday. I'm talking about Roland Emmerich's landmark blockbuster. No, I'm not kidding. We are actually talking about Independence Day on Independence Day, and we are being joined by educator, podcaster, and pop culture nerd on all fronts, Marlon Williford. He shocked me with a brand new interpretation of Independence Day that I haven't heard anywhere else, and I'm certain you have never heard either. It will have you rethinking this entire film from the ground up. I cannot wait to share this episode with you, so look out for it next week. My Favorite Movie Is is a Larry Freed Presents production. It was created by me, Larry Freed. It is also produced and hosted by me. And this episode was also co-edited by me alongside our house editor, Fernando Queiroz. Our graphic designer is Monica Sarmiento and our motion graphics designer is Elton Greenfield. Our theme song, Now and Then, as well as other original music featured on this show, was composed and performed by Matt Gorduke. This week, we were also fortunate enough to feature original music from our guest composer, Daniel Grumberg. A special thank you to Anna Chazelle for being an incredible guest and for being so generous with her time. And another massive special thanks to our patrons, Charles, Mo, Keith, Tony, Raffi, Taylor, and Sean. You guys are the reason I feel motivated enough to continue making this show. And for that, I thank you deeply. Did you know that patrons of My Favorite Movie Is get uncut and ad-free versions of every episode of our show for just $5 a month? That's just a little bit more than your average cup of coffee. Unless you're getting venti mocha frappuccinos at Starbucks, in which case you're probably paying more than that. These uncut and ad-free versions of the show sometimes add up to double, sometimes even triple the amount of podcast content. So if you want more, my favorite movie is, and you also want to help support this show and help keep it growing, you can join us at patreon.com slash MFMI podcast. This has been your host, Larry Freed. Thank you so much for listening to my favorite movie is.